All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 31 this morning. Again, this is a story that is unique to the Gospel of John. The other Gospels do not talk about Jesus' interaction with Thomas. Um, and so this, this story gives us a unique insight into the person and work of Christ, a unique insight into the resurrection itself and what it really means for us. And uh, I've really enjoyed taking the time this week to look long into it and have been just overwhelmed at what I have missed over the years. You know, how you read a text and you, you kind of, okay, I think I understand that. But when you really dig down into it, you realize there's so much more. There's so many more layers. And my encouragement to those of you um, is that even as a pastor, I, I am still um, struck by the beauty of God's Word. And, and it still continues to speak to me. And there's times I feel like, have I ever even read this before? And that's a beautiful thing and an encouragement to those of you who maybe have been Christians for a long time and, and maybe you're in a dry season. We all go there, right? We all find ourselves in the desert. And the Lord sometimes puts us there to see if we will seek to find an oasis, which is him and him alone, his grace, his mercy. Um, but this text um, opened up just beautifully for me this week, and I hope that it will be a blessing to you as well. Um, the first question that I have for you, and I think it's a very important question, this question actually is for Christians. You know who you are. Um, how do you expect Jesus to treat you after you have given in to fear and sin? How would you, if, if, if he could walk in to the place where you have held up, because again, remember, what do we normally do when we sin? Do we run to the throne or do we run from it, if we're honest? We run from it, even though we're believers, even though we read Hebrews where it says that Christ has opened the way for you to come boldly before the throne of grace, for you to receive what you need in a time of mercy. When is it that you need mercy, by the way? When you have in fear given in to sin and also to receive the grace that you need to continue on the mission to which you've been called. We, we know that, we read that, but always it seems our first move whenever we find ourselves falling into or intentionally diving headlong into fear and sin is to move away from the great gracious Father who has deemed us eternally beloved. What would you expect Jesus if he could walk into that place and find you what, would you, what would you think he would say to you? Well, let me tell you what he would say to you. And you may say, well, how do you know? Well, it's going to tell us in the text. He would say to you, peace be with you. He would say, remember who and whose you are. Remember the gospel. For you who are a believer, there is never a time coming when someone's going to come in and say, hey, I know I told you I did all this stuff for you, but you are such a wretch and such a failure that I just, you're bad for PR. You're killing my brand out here. I, I, I can't do anything with you. You're done. You're out. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't discipline us, now does it? But always his discipline is for a purpose, isn't it? Which is to restore us to him, to call us back home. So always the first words are, peace be with you. Would that we would remember that, that would help us to remember there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere one to run from. Remember what the psalm says. You can't even run from God in the grave. He is there too. And so would that we recognize that he is good and he is loving and that what he wants for us to remember always is that it is truly and eternally finished. 
So we find ourselves here because Jesus declared from the cross, remember that was unique to John as well, the only place that he says it is finished. And we've talked about what does it mean for it to be finished? Well, it means that it is finished. There's nothing more for you to do. There is nothing for you to earn. There is nothing for you to uh, have to manipulate so that God loves you more, likes you more, notices you more, none of that. All of your striving can cease. How many of you are tired of striving? I know that I am. I know that there are times when, when I find myself running so hard after something that is just sitting right there next to me free. And I know that many of you do the same. And so when Jesus says it is finished, that means that his work is complete and that we can enjoy salvation. Now you may say, well, pastor, what is sanctification? Well, sanctification is you spending your life figuring out exactly what that means. And it's your opportunity to grow every single day in knowing more and more what it means for it to be finished. And I can tell you as a, one who's been a Christian for 15, 16 years now, I, I kind of lose track of time. Um, I'm trying not to age is probably what's going on there. But uh, for about 16 years, I can tell you that I understand, I feel like, better now today what it means for it to be finished than I did certainly even two years ago, even last Easter this time. And I look forward to the reality that in two or three or four or five more years, I'm going to understand even better what it means that it is finished. And that will be even more glorious to me. And I will grow in my humility and my awe of who and what God is and who and what I have become as the beloved. Would that that would be true for all of us. Amen. This story should never grow boring to us. Oftentimes it does, but it's more to do with us than it is the story. So Jesus says, it is finished. And then the rest of the text that we didn't look at, he is then, as he gives up his spirit to ensure that he is in fact dead, you could read that the Roman soldier takes a spear and pierces his side and blood and water comes from it, indicating that he is in fact dead. And because he is already dead, they choose not to break his legs, which they would do in order to finish someone off. When you break their legs, they can no longer push themselves up and they suffocate to death at last. So they didn't break his legs, which, remember, fulfills one of the scriptures now, doesn't it? Not a bone of his was broken. And why is that important? Because it signals yet again to us and the audience in that time frame that God who is sovereign is in control. Why would that be important? Because it looked like the darkest point in all of history for that audience. Remember, they thought it was over. For those of you who may have read Luke's passage, The Road to Emmaus, they ask this person who comes up, hey, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what has happened? That Jesus has been crucified and the one that we thought would redeem us is dead. And Jesus says, oh, foolish ones. Let me show you how from Moses through the prophets, I stand before you now. And their eyes are opened and, and their minds are brightened and their hearts are uplifted and worship comes because the risen Savior stands next to them. And so, side is pierced. He's taken down from the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, and a, a wonderful character. Unfortunately, we haven't preached through John, so you may or may not know about this character named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee who met Jesus by night, who was told, in order for you to be made new, in order for you to be saved, you must be born again. And Nicodemus' mind is, his mind is blown. 
And yet, here he is showing up again in the story, carefully taking down the very body of Jesus to ensure that it is entombed properly because he is, in fact, a Jew of Jews himself. So Jesus is put in the tomb, and the next morning, some women go out to see and make sure everything's okay. And as they approach the tomb, what do they find? The stone is rolled away. A stone so large that no mortal man could just roll it away. In fact, there were guards, if you know from the other Gospels, to ensure that no one would steal the body of Jesus so as to perpetuate this crazy first century terroristic myth. And yet the tomb is empty. And she runs and tells the disciples, but who listens to women in the first century? They don't go looking for him. In fact, they panic and they hide out in this upper room, which is what brings us to this story. But Mary has this wonderful experience where she too is walking along and and suspects that the person who comes up beside her is but a mere gardener. And she begins to talk with him and he says, who is it that you're seeking? Which is an echo, if you remember, from the first garden experience in John 18 when, when, um, when they come to arrest him. And he says, who is it that you're seeking? And they say, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they all fall down. So Mary, he asks her the same question. Who are you seeking? She says, Jesus of Nazareth. But he does something different. He doesn't say, I am. He says her name. And what else does it say in John about when I say their names, what will happen for the sheep? They will know who I am. They will know that I am. So Mary has this beautiful resurrection experience but it's not enough for the disciples. Instead of going looking for him, they go and hide. So that brings us to the text. But before we get to the text, let me give you a quote from George R. Beasley Murray. He was a New Testament scholar. He says, Jesus' shalom, which means peace, on Easter evening is the complement of it is finished on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. So when Jesus comes in and says to them, peace be with you, he is letting them know, in fact, the fullness of what it meant for it to be finished, that they are being made new again. Let's turn to the text and look at verses 19 and 20. This is John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We'll deal with just the first two verses of that, but I wanted to read all that together so we would have the context. Notice that Jesus somehow miraculously appears on the other side of a locked door. Now, we can argue about, did he he somehow, his particles like make it through the wood of the door? Did the door just like magically unlock? Was there a secret knock and handshake? What do we got going on here? Does the scripture tell us how he's on the other side of that door? No, but amen that he could move through a locked door. 
And that's good news for you and I who oftentimes try to run and hide from him and put up all sorts of barriers, all sorts of locked doors, all sorts of things to try to keep him out of our lives for him only to move through them some miraculous way so that he could stand before us and say, peace be to you. Now, what would you, again, expect if you had fled from Jesus, as these folks had, and you had disbelieved the resurrection, if you had denied what was written in Scripture, essentially, with your actions, again, what would you expect him to come in and say to you? Notice what he doesn't say. You bunch of idiots. Did you not hear what I said? Did you not read what was written in Isaiah from, a little, from little kids, you guys have heard this stuff. What more must I do? As we as parents would do, right? But only Jesus can come in and say, peace be with you. And in that moment, essentially let them know that what they have done is not permanent. What they have done is not keeping them from the love of the Father. What they have done is not keeping them from salvation. Their sin has not had the final say. Their failure has not had the final say. And that should be good news to every single one of you because you are all, myself included, pretty good at being sinners, if not masters. And we have all, as Christians, for those of us who are, come up short, haven't we? None of us is so killing it that any blog has been written about any of us that I'm aware of. None of us have wound up on the Aquila report for a good thing. And so... Here, he steps in and grants them what he had already promised them. If you've read John, you remember from John 14, 27 and John 16, 33, he said, I am granting my peace to you. And that is of such a significant word for so many of you because you are haunted by your mistakes. You are haunted by your sin. You are haunted by your failures. And you try to outrun them, but they, somehow they always catch up, don't they? Usually somewhere in the dark of the night behind some locked door. And yet Jesus is always there too to remind you, peace be with you. And so here he is letting them know that he is the physical resurrection evidence, that he is in fact tangible. Notice what he does. They don't ask for this. He just offers them his nail-scarred hands and shows them his side, which means that he was truly and physically resurrected. It was critical for them to know, no, he is, he is the one. So he condescends to what they needed. How many times does God condescend to what we need? How many times has God come down to us? How many times have we gone up to him, by the way? Well, we, we tried in Genesis 11, this thing called the Tower of Babel, right? And what was the point of that? Because we were so excited to spend time with God? No, what we were hoping is that he would stay up there, and when we needed him, we could go and say, hey, bro, we need some help down here. Help us out. Plain of Shinar, we're having some problems. Is that what God is, a cosmic candy machine? Something that we control and we decide when and where he speaks? Praise God, no, he's not any of that. And he can even speak through his creation. 
He can speak through anyone that you encounter. And he's always speaking, as it turns out. It's whether or not you're paying attention. He has much to say to us. And most importantly, what he's saying is, I love you. Peace be with you. So here the resurrected Savior grants them this. And notice what it does for them. It results in their joy. They immediately begin to worship. The Lord is risen. What should you say? He is risen indeed. Frederick Dale Buhner says of this passage, he says, the risen Lord's initial gift to his assembled disciples is his peace, which means his love, his forgiveness, his favor, and his blessing. Thus, the first words of the risen Jesus and of his mission to the gathered disciples significantly are not a command, but a gift. There is no preliminary reminder of the disciples' failure to support him in his crisis. No call for repentance even. Or even a call for faith. There is but sheer grace. Now for some of you, that may make you a little uncomfortable. You're wondering, oh goodness. Has Cameron been reading that Tullian Javagen? Well, no, not recently. But this is true, by the way. It is sheer grace. Notice he doesn't require anything of them other than to confess that he is Lord. And they do because he is Lord. And it is evident to them. Now that's not to say that there is not judgment. Yes, there is. And that should bother us that anyone would reject so wonderful and beautiful an offer as this. This sheer grace. This peace being with you and all. So what are some ways in which you are this Easter season or any time prior to this in which you are experiencing peace as a result of the finished work of Christ? See, so often we fail to take time to remember, don't we? We have our laundry list of things that we feel like God is failing to do and get to, right? Like, I, I wish he'd clean this mess up in, in, in Belgium. Can you just clean that up real quick? Can't we just do this? Can't we just wipe ISIS? Can't we just knock that out like real quick? That would help us have some peace, wouldn't it? Peace when we fly, peace when we travel, peace when we go to government buildings, peace when we vote, all that kind of stuff, right? But is that what he's here for? That kind of peace or is there a peace that is deeper still that surpasses all understanding that he is far more concerned with? It's not to say he's not concerned about the things of this world, because he is. But that's not primary, it's secondary. If you don't have the peace of Christ, all that other peace won't matter one hill of beans to you. It'll be meaningless. So, so often we fail to take time to stop and say, how is Christ's peace being with me more beautiful, more worthy of worship today than it has been in the past? This is a great thing for those of you who recognize the necessity of the Lord's Day, which is the Christian Sabbath. It's a great time for you as a family to stop and pause at some point in the day and just talk about this one simple question. How has God been good this past week? See, so often we're only looking for like these big, magnificent things, and we're so entitled by that that we don't recognize all of the good gifts that we've been given. 
all of the ways in which peace in our family is so, so something not to be over, overthought. I mean, we had Easter dinner yesterday with our family, and there's, there's been times when that would not have been a fun thing to do, and it wouldn't have been good. And yet we were all able to dine together and enjoy one another's company. Why? Because of what Christ is doing in and through the various members of our family. Not all of us are perfect, by the way, chief among them. Don't take the small things for granted. Your health, the provision that you've been given this week, even the challenges that come your way are so often a severe mercy because it's God saying to you, you have drifted, come back. Or there's a way in which you need to grow that you cannot grow under any other circumstance. If it was not necessary for us to grow, why didn't he just, as soon as we became a Christian, why don't we disappear? Because there's something beautiful that goes on between the now and the not yet that will not happen in the not yet. I've mentioned this before, but Mo Leverett calls it the lost art of redemptive suffering. He recognizes that you will only suffer in communion with Christ on this side of heaven. Once we get to heaven, you will not know him in that way anymore. Praise God in one sense, but in another sense, how valuable is it for us to live as redeemed ones in this groaning yet fallen and broken world so we could come to know Christ and his work in greater measure. So, Take time today at some point and just think about how has the peace of Christ become more real to you? And if you can't answer that, that should trouble you. If it's not becoming more real, something is being lost in translation, I would encourage you to talk to some of us. Let us pray with you. Let us talk about that because it could be something you're missing. And it could be just a time of dryness where you need people to come around you and love you well to be able to remind you that peace is with you, though it feels like it is very, very far right now. Turning back to the text, the portion that we read after, where he again repeats, peace be with you, and he breathes the Holy Spirit upon them and he gives them their mission. Notice that he is yet again declaring something deeper still, that his peace is not just for their own benefit, by the way. Remember, we got to keep in mind his prayer in John 17. What is it that Christ desires above all else? That the church would grow and grow out of its love and unity. How are we doing? How are we doing in, in, in the public's eyes? We're so fractured, aren't we? between denominations and between these varying things, even within denominations. We make sure that we have certain little secret ways of making sure that you know that I am, I am even more of that than you thought. <laughs> why would we not be, why would being a Christian not be more than sufficient? Why does everything have to be added to? What more do we need? What does the world think of the church? So often it just disregards it because it's like, you guys can't decide on one interpretation of the dadgum book. What hope do we have? You guys can't figure out who's supposed to be in charge. Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it Jesus? Is it God? Is Jesus God? You guys can't even decide on that, it seems like. Was he man? Who's in? Who's out? Who's okay to come to church? 
So the world looks on us and just, Christ, I think, weeps. And we too should be more concerned about his church and more concerned about this mission. Notice what he does here. He, he does something that is an act of recreation. He breathes the spirit upon them. Now, there's a lot of discussion by commentators on, well, is this kind of a, a prelude to Pentecost? Is it a pointing forward to Pentecost? Like what's, what exactly is happening here? Well, I don't know. But what I do know is it says he breathed the Holy Spirit on them and that that is a, a, uh, um, an act that is creative and it reminds us of Adam. Remember, how was Adam formed? What did God do? He breathed his spirit into him. So what we're seeing here is these men are being made new. We are seeing here that they are being granted newness of life from Jesus himself, which also tells us he is who? Who can breathe the Holy Spirit on somebody and make them new? God alone. So yet again, John is screaming at us. Jesus is God. And he says what he had prayed for in John 17. He says, I want you to be unified in the mission. And the basis of that unity is my relationship to God the Father. And the basis of that unity is my peace that I have granted and given to you. And so here they are being told, you are being set apart for a purpose. Christian, do you know that you have been set apart for a purpose? And how are you doing in that, using your gifts, working with others? Is it up to one individual to save the whole thing? No, it's why we have different parts of the body. It's why we work in this together. Don't feel the burden of it all falling on you. You're not that important. I'm not that important. And so here Jesus is saying you're being set apart for a purpose. Now, it says that this, this troubling text, right? It says, um, it says that he, whoever you forgive, they're forgiven. And whoever you withhold forgiveness from, it is withheld. Now, many have tried to use this to say that the disciples were given absolution. No, this is actually an echo of Ezekiel 1 and, and other texts in Ezekiel where God says to Ezekiel, listen, it is your job to make sure that you tell those who are perishing why, in fact, they are perishing. How they respond is their business. And in my business, I'll take care of that part. But your job is to make sure they hear. So what's happening here is not that they're being given some superpower. What they're being granted is the preaching of the gospel. They now have the words to take and give to the people that will either set them free or harden them further. It will either be the smell of life and beauty, or it will be the stench and aroma of death. This is not absolution. This is not their unique ability. In fact, that's given to us as well. And what he's saying is make sure you preach the gospel alone and nothing more. We see it in other texts as well. John says it in Revelation. What happens if you add anything to the book of Revelation? All of the curses therein fall on you. I'd be real careful about writing fiction books about Revelation. If I were you, anybody thinking about doing that? Talk to me afterwards. We'll get that straightened out. So here he is forming them into the beloved community that he had prayed for in John 17. He is ensuring that it will come to pass. Listen at what Catholic theologian John Veneer says about this. He says, in this short encounter... 
Jesus transforms the group of frightened and confused individuals into a community of love where the disciples become covenanted together. They are called to become like Jesus and to continue together the mission given them by the Father to reveal the merciful face of God, the compassionate and forgiving God, and to give life, eternal life, to all who accept him. God took the initiative to liberate us when we were trapped behind the barriers of fear and sin. Did you hear that? God took the initiative, and now he calls us to do the same, to go to those who are behind locked doors, to go to those who are, who are in fear of God and declare to them, no, peace be with you. God loves you because you're created in his image. You are his son or daughter. Do not run from him. Jude says, snatch them from the fire, hating even the flesh defiled by the fire. Galatians says, when anyone is caught, you who are spiritual, bear their burden. Is that what we do? Are we quick to apply the peace of Christ to those who are caught? Are we living as the beloved community? So let me ask you, how is Jesus transforming and equipping you to live on mission with God? Another great question for you to consider this Lord's Day, this Easter. Because if he's not, something again is, something's off. You're missing something. Because he's always seeking to build us up and mature us for the sake of his mission. Some of you, it may be just to develop a deeper heart for prayer. Some of you, it could be to give. Some of it, it, you, it could be to go. Some of you, it could be to preach. Although there's not a lot of room up here. Some of you, it could be to serve the children. Some of it, you, it could be to serve the poor. Some of it, you, it could be to focus upon racial reconciliation. There's lots of things for us to do. The kingdom is big and the mission is big and there's plenty, plenty to do in a fallen world. Let's turn back to the text and what we're gonna see is an exact parallel. Thomas is gonna have the exact same experience that the disciples just had and that's critical for us to understand this text. Listen at what it says, and notice the grace of God to go back and, and retrieve the one who wasn't there the first time. Notice the effort that he makes. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Did you hear that? That's not doubt. I don't know where doubting Thomas came from, but that is so much stronger than just doubt. I will never believe. These are his brothers. You've got to understand, 10 of his closest friends just said, we've seen the risen Savior, plus a, a bunch of women who had been at the tomb. And Thomas says, I don't care what any of you fools say. I will never believe unless I touch him for myself. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who will believe because they have not seen me. 
Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Notice what just happened here. Thomas basically says, listen, unless Jesus shows up himself and I get to see it for myself, I'm, I'm never going to believe. And so what does Jesus do? He says, well, then I'm going to leave you in your unbelief and may you perish, you fool. That's what he does, right? No, we didn't read that part. What he does is he shows up. And he says, Thomas, peace be with you, brother. Put your hand here. Put your hand here does the same for Thomas that he'd already done for the other ten. And he says, my Lord, my God. And what you've got to notice is that Thomas is declaring that Jesus is God. And notice that Jesus does not tell him, as do the angels, as do common men, no, I'm not God, don't worship me. Jesus receives his worship and says, believe, don't disbelieve. And then he makes a statement about, about seeing. Have you believed because you have seen me? Some seem to take this to mean that he is chastising Thomas. No, he's reminding Thomas of the mission. Because notice what he says next. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. What is he saying? He's saying, Thomas, I'm going away. I'm going away and you all will be the evidence. You all will be the nail-pierced hands and the pierced side. You will become the incarnation of that which I have done for you. So give it away. Declare to all who you come in contact, peace be with you. Essentially, he's saying the same thing he had said earlier in the passage that we read in John. What I love is how John says all of these things have been written so that you would have life. The more I go, the more that's what I long for. I long to be alive. But it's important that we recognize that we, apart from Christ, are not alive. We're dead. We're dead in our transgressions. Beautifully, even in death, the Lord walks through that locked door and says, peace be with you. And in great love, the Lord says, death will lose its sting. And it will not have dominion over you because I am the Lord. I have dominion. And you are mine. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this passage. He says, we should not take carefully the amazing kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ to a weak disciple and the trouble he was pleased to take the unbelief of Thomas was most provoking and inexcusable. And if he had been cast out of the company of the disciples, we could not have said his excommunication was undeserved. But our Lord cares tenderly for this weak member of his mystical body and specially appears in order to heal and restore him. What a wonderful example he gives to all his people. How kind we we ought to be to weak brothers and sisters and how ready to take any pains and trouble if we can only do them good. What Christ did for Thomas, we ought to be ready to do for others. Did you hear that? What Christ has done for Thomas, he has also done for you. How many of you has Christ met you in a deep and dark place? 
How many of you has Christ met you at the pinnacle of what you thought was all that you thought you could and should be? How many of you has Christ in his grace said, peace be with you? We all have different stories. It's not the power of the story that's important. It's the power of the Savior. It's the power of the risen one that makes it all possible. It's not how much you've done. Uh, so many times I talk with people and it's, 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 it hurts my heart to hear them say, I just don't feel like I have much of a story. Like I feel like I should go out and like mix it up a little bit, get a little dirty and then try to come back so that maybe God can use my story. It's not about your story. In fact, we do a disservice when we say, hey, let me share my testimony. No, we should say instead, and this is not semantics, by the way. We should say instead, let me share with you Christ's testimony in and through me. How has Christ worked in and through me and, and reached me through the locked door to say, peace be with you? The emphasis is not on you. It's on Christ and what he has done. Amen? So often we get so tangled up in thinking that the story is what is important, our story rather, instead of the risenness of the Savior. So let me ask you, how do you, how do you react to those who struggle with disbelief or unbelief? Are they a burden to you? Do you just want to, just, just go read an R.C. Sproul book and shut up. Which is not a bad idea, by the way, the R.C. Sproul part, not the shut up part. But, but notice how Christ takes the time, how Christ is willing to go into places where it was tough to go and, and willing to say and do what Thomas needed to believe. Are you willing to abide with and walk with people in the midst of this? So many are quick to quote, um, and this hasn't happened here, by the way, so I'm not calling anybody out, but I've heard this in, in my Christian life. Well, Sometimes you got to shake the dust off. Keep moving. Who, who told you to shake the dust off, by the way? That wasn't given to you. And you are not the one to decide when the dust is to be shook. Only the Spirit is. And as far as I can tell, He is long-suffering. And yes, there's a time for us to walk away from someone because it has become too hard and hardened in them, but never forget them. Always return and make sure they hear again, I love you, I have not forgotten you, and peace be with you if you would but receive. May we be a church that is not quick to say to someone, <laughs> you don't understand predestination and free will yet? <laughs> None of us do, by the way, and we won't till Jesus shows up. And any of you who think that's an easy conundrum to solve, you got something to teach me. We should never make it such that people cannot accept, access the truth of the gospel or to make them feel like they are less than because they haven't read Calvin's Institutes in the original language. We should always offer peace. We should always be willing to abide with and bear with their doubts and disbeliefs. And so love them as Christ has loved us. Amen? So, what do we learn from John 20, 19 through 31? We learn that Jesus in his resurrection grants us peace in his presence. We also learn that he equips us in the, with the Holy Spirit as he had promised in John 16 for the mission of God. We begin everything we need to do what he called us to do. Third, that he overcomes our disbelief so that we may have life in his name. Did you hear what I just said? He overcomes 
comes our disbelief. That is certainly my testimony, who is a radical anti-theist, and I don't have time to tell you about it, and I just violated my own thing. It's Christ's testimony in me, not my testimony. My testimony was the radical anti-theist part, by the way. That is my testimony. The other part is his and his alone. And he overcame all of that anger and all of that disbelief and overwhelmed me with his love and said, peace be to you. And I remember the moment because the first thing I thought is, this is what it feels like to breathe. This is what it feels like to have life. Michael D. Williams in the book, Far As the Curse Is Found, says this, Thomas's confession does not merely acknowledge the reality of the resurrection, but also expresses its ultimate significance. Jesus is the conqueror of death because he is none other than the creator of life. Now the story is told. The wound of the garden is healed. On resurrection morning, God was able again to say what he had exclaimed over his creation so long ago. It is good. It is very good. It matters that Jesus was restored bodily because it signaled that Jesus was the creator and promised redeemer who covenants with his people, who promises to come to them, and who keeps his promises. Jesus, the one and only, has made Yahweh known with Thomas, we confess that he is God and we are his. There's no better way for us to celebrate Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus than for us to bear witness to a baptism. And we have that opportunity this morning as we will baptize Stephen Bradley Waters.